So this evening, uh, before the sit at 6.45, uh, an old friend came and she came into the teacher room and she said, Hi, I'm here to hear your talk. And she gave me a big hug and she said, You're nervous, aren't you? Just like that. And I hadn't really been focusing on that until she said that. And then I felt the energy in my body. And you're probably feeling similar kind of energy in your body from just having talked. And it's amazing how the talking resonates afterwards. Like you come back to sit and you think, ah, silence again. <laughs> Except, wah, 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 right? <laughs> I was going to come in and sit with you, and I thought, oh, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if I want to go in there. (laughs) I have enough of my own going on. (laughs) So let's make this little silent prayer before giving the talk. May there just be something in it that's useful to you. That's a modest modest, uh, aspiration. And, you know, like you, I really, I really love being here. And, of course, I look forward to seeing people when I go home, but there's a part of me that just really doesn't want to leave what we have created here, this, um, this mandala of practice, of just watching your faces transform, you know, just watch. It's like watching people's hearts open on their face. You know, their faces getting clear and soft and, um, and then seeing people smiling this afternoon. And it's just very, very beautiful process to witness and learn so much from you and been really inspired by you these last, I don't know, nine days, I guess. We've been focusing on the seven factors of enlightenment here, and so I'm going to, my assignment is to talk about the seven factors of enlightenment in daily life as a coming home talk. And I thought, sometimes we say seven factors of awakening, and and I thought, but what, what is enlightenment? What do we mean, you know, when we say seven factors of enlightenment or even awakening? And What's the most important piece of all the things that uh, could be said about that? None of which in words would express it, but I thought, I think more and more, maybe just dissolving that sense of ourself as the total point of reference for everything. Actually, everything. And, um, right? Everything. It's going to help me, it's going to hurt me, it's going to threaten me, it's going to support me, anything. And and then I um, I like to quote Sister Helen Prejean. She's the one that was portrayed in the film um, Dead Man Walking, who works with death row inmates and their families. And she also actually works with the victims of crimes and their families. And sometimes people have reproached her and said, you know, how can you work with... Uh, the criminals and the perpetrators and also the victims, and how can you do that? Like, how could you work with both? And um, almost accusing her, you know, how could you, if you understand and relate to the victims, how could you work with the... Anyway, you understand. And she, to be able to hold both those sides of reality in her heart, to me that is also a quality of, of enlightenment. And she says... Uh, My whole faith now is making love present in the world and letting love be in my life. What counts now is being with people, especially with those people who are most excluded, death row inmates and their families. And then she goes on to say, which I think, you know, this is the definition I'm talking about here. She says, when our little boat gets caught up on a wave that's bigger than we are. Our endless self-absorption melts away. You know, which is a really great argument for finding something in life that we care about, that feels somewhat bigger than we are. 
And then we can feel more what others are feeling. And we don't abandon our own bodies and feelings and needs. We just let go of being so local, so localized and and uh, that with that sort of knee-jerk self-involvement. And then day by day, you have felt the tightness loosening, the reactivity lessening. I mean, we've gotten so many notes of along the lines of, you know, I, there was somebody or something or someone or that I hated and then I couldn't really do anything about it because I'm here and then it transformed. And then I wound up loving her or him or it or, you know, it. And then we just, yeah, we get more and more aware and attuned to this current of life that's just flowing through all of us, in us, as us, just all of us, like life appearing in the form of you, in the form of me. And so to me, the basic point of being Buddhist, I mean, I suppose it could be the basic point of being Jewish or Christian. It's just that I happen to be involved in this right now and have been actually all my adult life. Um, I was born in a Jewish family, but the hurdle of having to learn Hebrew and teachings weren't really accessible to us in the same way um, anyway, being a Buddhist or living these, practicing these Buddhist teachings is to live lovingly and joyfully without getting so caught in um, or identified with the suffering self. And, and not just out in some fantasy mountain cave that we might imagine ourselves in or on meditation retreat at luxurious spirit rock or in the monastery or but in the midst of whatever we're doing that's the thing and and to live to find a way to live without you know uh as the buddha said you know sinking wallowing um or denying and rushing past our suffering to transform whatever we're doing whether we're opening and closing doors sitting down on our seat standing up and walking across the ground, the floor supporting us, brushing our teeth, doing the dishes, transforming all of these things into a practice of the path. And this is sometimes easier said than done, as we know. So I wanted to just tell you a story, because you're about to go home, and, and when you leave retreat, you're pretty sure that you know, when you leave, you know where you're going, and you're pretty sure that when you get home, um, you know, your couch will still be in the living room, and your fridge is still in the kitchen, and uh, your pets and family or whoever, you know, they'll be there waiting for you. But really and truly, in the deepest sense, we don't know this. We just assume it. And so uh, leaving this big experience and, and going home is a kind of leap into the unknown. Um, it's a leap of faith. So this is a story, uh, it was, I thought of it when Philip talked about not having time to tell his story of falling off the mountain in Zermatt. And because I was actually at the top of a mountain with my ex- family, uh, extended family, so I'm having having lunch, and this was a mountaintop where people were, the restaurant was situated so that you would sit and have lunch, and the entertainment was watching people hang glide off the top of the mountain while you were sitting there comfortably in your chair eating your lunch, and they would jump into this abyss, you know, and, and so it was really fun. We thought it looked like a lot of fun, and then um, somebody made a dare, and said, I'll pay, because it was expensive to do that. Uh, I think it cost $100 or something. I'll pay whoever is willing to do it. And I looked around the circle of lunch, and nobody was volunteering. And I don't know what possessed me, but um, I just thought, okay, I'll do it. And so the money was paid, and... uh, I found myself strapped in a harness with a man I had never met before. He was, I trusted, an experienced hang glider. And um, 
suddenly we were running toward the edge of a cliff <laughs> together. And there were these boards. It was like sort of a boardwalk, and then it just dropped off. And, um, and I thought, I mean, I'd like to tell you that I did what I was pretty sure I would do, which was just like, wow, everybody, you know, really run and jump into the air gracefully, you know, like, anyway. Um, but what happened was really different because there was this wooden jumping off place and you had to run ahead of time to get the momentum. It was about 100 feet, I guess, maybe less than the, than to the end, less than to the Kuan Yin, and, but it's nice to see her there. And um, so we ran really fast toward the jumping off place and then, I don't know, about a dozen feet, I, I really don't know how, my legs stopped working. <laughs> they saw, I think they, they, I think they saw the abyss before my mind did. And um, they just, they went on strike, they refused to move. It was, it was really a weird sensation. But because we had been running and there was momentum already, they just dragged uselessly. <laughs> Um, they just dragged uselessly on the ground. And <laughs> but fortunately, the glider had already caught the wind, or unfortunately at that moment. And we, we did, we took off, and I will never forget the horror of that moment. <laughs> of just, you know, just that first moment without the ground. I mean, actually, right now, I can feel it again talking to you. I'm really getting um, quite frightened. And... So we were just hanging in huge space, and I remember just feeling that complete paralysis as I watched, um, I remember the bushes and the rocks and the dirt, and just watching them receding uh, as we, uh, you know, we floated out over this, it was really, really high, um, and there was a lake way, way, way down below, and... um, I was just hanging on to the only solid things that I could find, which were these little wires and the man. And, um, and then, you know, amazingly, amazingly, out of somewhere, mindfulness appeared. It, it was just a miracle. And in a split second, I saw the choice. I could be completely terrified and just, you know, cling the whole way down, or, um, I mean, I was, what was I clinging to? It was a complete illusion of safety. I mean, he was out in the air, too, and the <laughs> wires were out in the air, too. You know, it's not like there was anything solid to hang on to. Um, but we do, we cling, right? The illusions of safety. Or I could just relax and enjoy the ride and realize that this opportunity um, to just trust and float down, uh, you know, it just might never come again, and in fact, it never has <laughs> come again. Um, and it was a beautiful day. I could see under us the birds flying over the lake, and there was this vastness of air, and the sun was shining, and there was space just all around, above, below, to the sides, and it was very, very silent. You know, just this sensation of soaring and and, and quietly flying, and the me was humbled into silence. You know, just complete, complete silence. And resting in that gra- great, um, great vast space of mind, like Jack was evoking for us, I think it was yesterday morning, that space of sky and lake and mountain, and just gliding, slowly, slowly falling, uh, it was like falling through the arms of the universe. And, and yes, there was mindfulness, great interest in what was happening, and really some joy and calm. And ultimately, yes, a little bit of equanimity. To see these factors, um, to be aware of these qualities, we're, they're, they're appearing in our experience all the time. And to direct our attention to them and to realize them, to realize, oh, this is it. This is what's uh, being talked about. This is important. It's inspiring for us. And 
the Buddha was very grounded in his environment. You know, he, um, he knew how to connect with the people who was listening to him. He used the images just from their lives. And, and, um, and when you read the talks of the Thai forest, the meditation masters, um, Achan Mun, Achan Cha, Achan Buddha Dasa, they use very colloquial terms and metaphors from, you know, raising animals and from agriculture, just the, the life, the everyday life of their times. And so it's very good for us to find ways to do that too and to see our life of this moment um, in, in terms of these seven qualities. So I'm just going to, and we've heard them a lot, but maybe in a different context, um, uh, go through them again and make uh, a bow to my colleagues. So the first one, of course, is mindfulness, to be aware of what you're doing. For example, if you find yourself in a dragon boat, this could happen, to paddle you know, to balance your paddling with the person on the other side so that your boat doesn't go in circles. I mean, it's the same if we find ourselves in a relationship. We have to both be all in, right? Or one of us, at least, is going to be going around in circles. Um, We have to be mindful of our cars on the way to work. If our car goes too fast, it gets stopped, or a flash goes off, um... Right? And you have a ticket. If it goes too slow, you'll be late for work. And if you live in L.A., people are going to honk at you. Um, I moved from Boston, where they say people are not really good drivers. They cut you off. and I mean, I was used to it because I lived there. But when I moved to L.A., people do drive actually better than in Boston. But they honk at you, which people didn't do back east. They just... Anyway, if you um, slow down too much. So you have to be mindful of how much you're slowing down and all these other factors. Uh, So this is mindfulness in our daily life, right? And to quote Leonard Cohen, actually I'm going to paraphrase Leonard. He says, he's talking about songs. He says, I've always held the song in high regard. I would say I've always held mindfulness in high regard because mindfulness have got me through so many sinks of dishes, and so many humiliating courting events. Um, And then we have to be constantly investigating, looking into what we're doing, so we don't, you know, accept a dare and find ourselves, you know, floating in the air in some very frightening way. Um, We have to be alert and check things out as we go and examine the quality of our work and meeting our deadlines and the states of mind of our coworkers, and um, or when you're wandering around your neighborhood at all hours of the day and night, um, how to avoid the various perils and pitfalls and, and be learning in the process. And one of you told me a very beautiful story um, that I think has to do with uh, how to this, this sense of when we are wandering around, we can, in a brand new place or facing the unknown, there can be fear and disorientation. And um, and he was telling me about his work that involved often going to the scene of an accident or a crime where somebody actually would be dying, and the people who were dying would be very, very scared. They're facing the ultimate unknown. And he said, it's just the simplest thing. He said, I always carry, I would always carry a bag of flashlights. And then I would give them a flashlight and tell them they're going to be all right. They have a light, they're going to be all right. And so whatever we're doing, we have to put effort into it. Um, You know, it could be something as simple as this summer I had a chance to go horseback riding where I was teaching at Vallecitos Mountain Refuge. And and 
there's just these beautiful grasses everywhere. For the horses, you know, it's like, I don't know, riding through some delicious constant snack bar. And they always want to put their heads down and eat. And you have to really pull their heads up and not let them eat because if they know that you're going to let them eat, then they just will keep eating. And it's something about, I guess, letting them know who's in charge. Um, Often one doesn't feel in charge, but I guess they can imagine you're in charge and anyway, they don't. Uh, But then you also have to let them go when you run. You don't pull back on their heads or they won't really go and run fast. Um, Or maybe we're resisting a habit that's hard to resist. I have the habit of when I'm uh, scared or nervous, I eat candy. Uh, Preferably chocolate, but any candy will do. And, And if I stop and think about it, you know, what, why? I mean, I think of my grandson, Owen. If he told me, Nini, that's what he calls me, Nini, I'm really scared. I wouldn't just shove a big chunk of chocolate into his mouth. Do you know, that wouldn't... It wouldn't actually occur to me to do that. Um, But we do these things that don't serve us exactly, or maybe aren't attuned to address exactly what's going on. Uh, Maybe it's an addiction. And uh, we know that expression, the addict in us, is cunning baffling, and patient, (laughs) right? We think we're over it, and then here comes the chocolate. Um, So this is, uh, our effort has to be balanced, like when we're caught in quicksand. I am so grateful to you, because now I won't be as afraid of quicksand as I was. I mean, a little bit probably still, but... Uh, that is such a metaphor for struggling with any of the forces that we let or imagine um, hold us back. And we can remember, like James Baldwin, he said, the things that tormented me the most were the very things that connected me with all the people who were alive or who had ever been alive. We don't think of it that way, but it's true. The things that tormented me the most were the very things that connected me with all the people who were alive or had ever been alive. So whether we're taking care of business, of children, of parents, or practicing meditation, anything can be boring or burdensome if we don't find satisfaction in it. It's kind of like uh, what the wonderful clown Wavy Gravy said. He said, if you don't have a sense of humor, it's not very funny. (laughs) It takes a minute. Um, And if we don't have um, any satisfaction or joy in what we're doing, then it's not very joyful or satisfying, is it? Or it can be fun in a dharmic sense, you know, interesting or rewarding. And we're better able to follow and do that which we find interesting and and rewarding or joyful or satisfying. And or I like the word used in the text, um, gladdening. And gladdening means finding a sense of refreshment, of ease, of satisfaction in the moment. in the present moment. And one of you told me a very touching story about uh, somebody whose father died uh, when he was young. And he said right before his father died, one night he woke him up in the middle of the night and he said, come with me. And he took him downstairs and they went outside. And there was a kind of brick wall outside the house and the house was um, in New Mexico in the desert. And there was a storm, a desert storm that had come up. And his father uh, put him in his lap and 
just kind of sat there and rocked him. And his father said, I love this weather. And then he said, I'm not afraid of storms. And he just rocked him and they sat there together. And there was that sense of safety and ease and of a powerful transmission. And, you know, I don't know what kind of dad this was, but, you know, many men of that generation weren't going to necessarily say a lot of gushy things, especially at a time like that. So this was his legacy of just holding and being completely at ease and saying, I'm not afraid of the storms of life. I love this weather. Um, And it reminds me of, well, of two things. The first one is um, a time in my own life when I was really, really kind of at the bottom of my life. I was really devastated. I had had to leave my marriage and I just didn't, I had really left my whole known world and was um, kind of free-falling through the abyss. Uh, But there wasn't the hang glider or the man there. Uh, So it was a different experience. And I remember um, I went back to Boston to visit and my first teacher, the Korean Zen master that I mentioned to you in the other talk, he was coming to visit from Korea. And I was invited to have lunch with him and some other people from the Zen Center, even though I hadn't been at the Zen Center for years. I think people felt I probably needed to see him. And so I was included in the lunch, and we were sitting and waiting for our table, and I remember it was this sort of red naga-hide bench in a Korean restaurant um, on Prospect Street in Central Square in Cambridge, and I was sitting next to him, and he just, he took my hand, and he had a strong hand, and he was just holding my hand. I just started to cry. And I was just weeping. And he held my hand, and he just whispered one word. He said, weather. It was a beautiful teaching, and it wasn't exactly the teaching of this man's father to him, but it was a similar feeling of being held and realizing from his point of view, it was weather and that um, I trusted him and that helped me a lot. And the other thing it reminded me of, that story of being held and rocked by his dying father was the story of the Buddha who had a moment kind of, of rem- he remembered a moment kind of like that. He had been starving himself and really, I mean, they call it practicing austerities. That's the nice word for self-torture, self-mutilation. I mean, horrible practices that they were doing. And he had these five ascetics who were helping him and they were kind of going along doing it with him but they were really pinning their hopes on him, that he would be the one who would you know, come to understand total liberation, transcend the body. And, um, and he was to the point of where he was almost dying in the text. It said that you could see the vertebra of, I don't know why I'm pointing at myself, it's nowhere near, but the vertebra of the <laughs> spine coming through the front of the body. Um, and that he got to that point where he was almost dying and, um, and then he had a thought and he said he was remembering a time when he was out. It was an afternoon, he was out with his dad and you know, it's always a special feeling to be out with your dad when you're little or your mom and he thought, and, and his dad was talking to some farmers and And he was just sitting there, but feeling that good, special, safe kind of feeling you have when you're with the parent you love. And and he thought, um, while my father was busy and I, as a boy, was sitting in the shade of the rose apple tree, 
been quite secluded from sensual desires. I mean, he was a kid. Secluded from, I like this phrase, unprofitable ideas. You may have had some of those this past while. Secluded from unprofitable ideas. I even had some this morning. Um, I had direct acquaintance of entering upon and abiding in meditation. And this particular stage of meditation is accompanied by thinking and exploring with happiness and pleasure. Might this be the way to enlightenment? And following that memory and that thought, he suddenly had this moment of clarity and he said to himself, this is the only way to enlightenment. And this satisfaction brings a state of calm. If our mind is agitated, it'll interfere with some of the other factors. It's a lot easier to be present when we're calm. And nature is calming. We can feel that here. It's just always offering metta to us. Doesn't it feel that that sort of metified energy of this beautiful land and creatures and and uh, just giving, giving, giving the hills and trees and their unbroken samadhi. And um, This is from an address to an NGO of the United Nations in 1977 um, by an Onondaga elder. I do not see a delegation for the four-footed. I see no seat for the eagles. We forget and we consider ourselves superior but we are, after all, a mere part of the creation. And we must consider to understand where we are. And we stand somewhere between the mountain and the ant. And from an Olala Lakota holy man, he says, every step you take could be a prayer. And if every step you take is a prayer, then you'll always be walking in a sacred manner. We can feel this doing walking meditation, especially outside. And these are some of the blessings of calm, of tranquility, that everything can be held in this vast stillness and silence. And you can let it come. And you can let it go. You can even let it come and let it grow. It's... um, It's held in the arms of the cosmos. So some practical ways to notice the quality of focus or concentration in our daily life. Uh, This story too was triggered by Philip's story about the spoon. Some friends took my parents out to dinner. I wasn't there, but my folks told me about it. They're not alive anymore, but Uh, My father worked at the World Health Organization for 30 years, so they lived um, in Geneva and in France, not far from Geneva. And some friends came and took them out to a really fancy restaurant um, in France, not too far from Geneva. And and my parents saw her do it, but the, the woman of the couple, while they were having dinner, she just very, very quietly and unobtrusively slipped um, this silver ashtray that had the name of the restaurant, Père Bees, on it. And she was very focused and concentrated when she slipped that ashtray into her purse. (laughs) Now, unlike Philip and his companion, um, after the check was paid and they were lingering over their coffee, I mean, she really did take the ashtray. Um, But unlike the restaurant owner, where Philip was, um, who falsely accused him, no one at Perbis said a word. It was a very, very elegant place. And the meal was complete, and they were sauntering toward the door, right? And the owner appeared, and he graciously thanked them. And then with a slight but elegant bow, he silently presented a bill for the ashtray on a little silver platter, And so, you know, they were very focused on their guests, concentrating on what was happening, meeting their every need um, at the table, 
and quite mindful about what was going on. When the mind settles down, it naturally becomes more focused. Um, And it's easier then to concentrate and see what's happening. And we need to be fairly undistracted if we're going to notice what's going on and respond appropriately, which we could define as the ability to remain somewhat poised uh, amid the little catastrophes of daily life. So when all these factors are present and they mutually reinforce each other, like Philip was saying, um, the mind gets able to just sort of effortlessly watch over things and keep them on track. And um, the effort becomes effortless in a way. And, and equanimity is like that when you're really in balance and yet there's some momentum. You don't make mistakes. The work just seems to kind of flow on its own. And we love moments like that. And I remember once after a retreat, uh, I was telling one of you this in a meeting that we were talking about this. And I remember once after a retreat, I was home and I was standing in the pantry and I turned around and I knocked, you know, there, there were cups in the shelves hanging on little hooks and, and I knocked a cup off and I didn't think anything at all. I just figured, you know, that's too bad. <laughs> it's broken. And before I knew it, my hand reached behind my back and caught the cup. I mean, that is not something I could have consciously done. It was just that kind of amazing effortless moment. So, Philip talked at some length about equanimity last night with great um, pleasure and joy. So, I'm not going to say too much about that except to say that it's really, it is about acceptance, about overcoming prejudice on every level, Um, a way of looking on all things very openly and equally. Pema Chodron, the Buddhist nun and teacher and writer, she says, the only reason that we don't open our hearts and minds to other people is that they trigger confusion in us. And we don't feel brave enough or sane enough to deal with it. To the degree, and this is what you've all been doing, to the degree that we look clearly and compassionately at ourselves, to that degree we feel confident and fearless about looking into someone else's eyes. And, um, and I think last about this, this, um, this sort of dynamic quality of being willing to be in full communication with life, <laughs> life in the form of another being, or I felt it, I just was walking a little bit uh, while you were sitting actually, and the light was going, and the, I think it's a little new moon was just rising, and everything was still, that hush of twilight, and, and I was just receiving the energetic presence of the world and feeling what it is to be that open and in full communication with life, which of course means full communication with the possibility of death. And, and it's, it's really a kind of, oh my God, feeling. It's just um, huge. And I think that's why in some ways the image of the mountain or the earth as symbolic. It's one of the traditional metaphors for equanimity, but it's it's kind of misleading um, because equanimity isn't unshakable because it's solid and unmoving, like some, you know, mass of earth or mountain or hill that is uh, beyond disturbance. It's strong because it's alive and energetic. And uh, one of you was saying that in Korea they have the saying that you have to be like green bamboo, like young bamboo, because that can bend and and sway and and be resilient. Um, 
and absorb shock of life's winds of shame and blame and gain and loss and pleasure and pain and all that. Life's winds. I just am at a choice point, so I want to take a moment and choose. I have, a, I'm going to skip a silly example. Um, but maybe you'd like to hear it, actually, now that I've said it's silly. Um, I was thinking of these experiences of being sort of buffeted by life's winds and my intention to include something from everybody's talk in mine. And so I was thinking of um, Jack's talk and he was talking about having to teach in front of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, right? Now, I myself have carefully um, designed my life so that I would never have done anything that would uh, elevate me into that situation of (laughs) teaching in front of the Dalai Lama, I'm happy to say, because I get nervous about speaking. Uh, But I did teach uh, with Jack at that conference at UCLA with Thich Nhat Hanh. There were, yeah, like, I don't know, well over a thousand people there. And uh, the experience of knowing that that was going to happen, uh, a friend of mine said it destroyed six months of her life uh, preparing. I'm happy to say I really feel I only lost about two or three weeks of my life. Um, to preparing. But it is true that the seven, these seven qualities of the heart can work together to turn any activity, um, even sitting up and speaking in front of a lot of people, into uh, a rewarding practice of feeling ourselves really walking on our path of awakening being and and many of you have just challenged yourselves in different ways well, first of all by coming here right but then in so many different ways um, with your practice here and and you can feel and see and sense yourself growing in courage and growing in strength and confidence um, and so this is how we wake up to our life and the life that's beckoning all around us, that's extending a really limitless invitation to be present and um, there's an expression uh, uniso manisakara and it means a kind of wise, careful, very thorough attention to things. And, and one of the words actually, it means womb. It has this quality of embracing or holding, of protecting, and really holding with a sense of love and uh, tenderness, something very warm, um, this personified mindfulness and metta that we, each one of us, are embodying here. And this is from the Buddha after he felt so held and safe um, that afternoon with his father under the rose apple tree. He now gave up self-mortification and took normal food again in order to restore to his emaciated body strength enough sufficient for his purpose. Now, his purpose was to understand suffering and how to come to terms with it. He had that question that we all have when you've seen a child suffer or you've seen a loved one who's passed away or, or you see somebody be born and you think, oh my gosh, or you give birth. That's when I thought of it. Is this how everybody got here? I can't believe it. 
It's unbelievable, you know? Uh, he wanted to understand this and how do we create experiences of suffering and how, more importantly, can we get free? He wasn't really sitting down and saying, you know, I'm not getting up until I understand the nature of consciousness and the nature of reality. It wasn't like that. It was much more elemental and sort of primordial than that. So he took normal food again in order to restore to his emaciated body strength sufficient for his purpose, which was to understand. And then the five ascetics, you know, his sangha, his buddies, left him in disgust, judging that he had failed and was merely reverting to that which he had forsaken. But now, in solitude, his new balanced effort in the tranquility of goodness, the joy of blamelessness, unified in concentration and guided by mindfulness and understanding, at length brought success in discovery of the way to the goal that he had sought for so long. He said, so I too found the ancient path, the ancient trail, traveled by the awakened ones of old. And that's so beautiful. He didn't say, wow, I'm the first one to get this. I'm going to start the Siddhartha Gautama school of, I don't know what, or, you know, workshop. Um, he said, so I too found the ancient path, the ancient trail traveled by the awakened ones of old. These mind-heart qualities in balance had brought him understanding. Um, and traditionally they were the four, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and understanding. But then when we add calm and joyful trust in the unfolding, we can make them be our seven. Um, so I want to quote uh, the Zen poet Leonard Cohen, because I think this is something really for taking home. You know, he says, and even though it all goes wrong. Because there are those moments when you get home and you think, oh my God, where did it go? Where did all those seven qualities, you know, they evaporated somehow. Um, to quote him, he says, even though it all goes wrong, I stand before the Lord of song with nothing on my lips but hallelujah. Nothing on his lips but gratitude and praise. And to paraphrase a verse from our Zen meal verses, this is, I guess, um, it's like a kind of Brahma Vihara phrase or prayer. May we exist like a lotus, beautiful, at home in muddy water, and offer a deep bow to life, fragile as it is. So let's just sit for a minute or two. May we exist like a lotus, beautiful, at home in muddy water, and offer a deep bow to life, fragile as it is. So thank you everybody for your attention, your attentive listening. And I want to invite you to just listen a little more.
uh, Trudy's gracious um, request, I'd like to uh, sing and play for you two of my favorite Dharma songs. If blood will flow when flesh and steel are one, drying in the colors of the evening sun, tomorrow's rain will wash the stains away. But something in our minds will always stay. Perhaps this final act was meant to clench a lifetime's argument that nothing comes from violence, nothing ever could for others born beneath an angry star, lest we forget how fragile we are. On and on the rain will fall like tears from a star, like tears from a star. On and on the rain will say how fragile we are, how fragile. Like tears from a star, like tears.
tears from the stars On and on the rain will say How fragile we are How fragile we are How fragile Here's uh, a song of celebration that I'm sure you know the words to, so please sing along. It's all right Little darling It's been a long, cold, lonely winter Little darling It seems like years since it's been here Here comes the sun Do-do-do-do Here comes the sun and I say it's all right Little darling, the smiles returning to their faces Little darling, it seems like years since it's been here Here comes the sun, doo-doo-doo-doo Here comes the sun, and I say it's all right Sun, 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 here it comes Sun, 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 here it comes Sun, 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 here it comes Little diamond, I feel the ice is slowly melting Little diamond It feels like years since it's been clear Here comes the sun Here comes the sun And I say it's all right Here comes the sun Here comes the sun And I say it's all right It's all right asking me to play one more piece. One encore? What do you think? Thank you, teacher. Pleasure.
teaches Dharma talk. <laughs> Many is the time I've been mistaken yeah, And many times confused Yes, and I've often felt forsaken And certainly misused Oh, but it's alright it's all right Cause we've lived so well so long Still you can't expect to be bright and bon So far away from home So far Away from home. I don't know a soul who's not been battered. Don't have a friend who feels at ease. I don't know a dream that's not been shattered and driven to its knees. Oh, but it's all right It's all right You can't be forever blessed Still, when I think of the road we're traveling on I wonder what's gone wrong Can't help it What's gone wrong? And I dreamed I was dying. I dreamed that my soul rose unexpectedly, looking back down at me, smiled reassuringly. I dreamed I was flying From high up above My eyes could clearly see The Statue of Liberty Sailing away to sea And I dreamed I was flying Come on the ship they call the Mayflower We come on the ship that sailed the moon We come in the age's most uncertain hour And sing an American tune Oh, but it's all right it's all right, it's all right You can be forever blessed Still tomorrow's gonna be another working day I'm trying to get some rest That's all I'm trying 
thank you. So thank you, everybody. There's still some time for walking before the last sit. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.